بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وافضل الصلاه واتم التسليم على اشرف الانبياء سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد كلما ذكرك الذاكرون وغفل عن ذكرك الغافلون the first question many people ask is why is sharia necessary why do we even need an islamic law why are restrictions necessary why are prohibitions necessary why does allah subhanahu wa ta'ala command us to do things why didn't allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create everyone and just left them the response to this question is that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created in every human being certain abilities and attributes by which human beings are able to subjugate the creation of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the earth to such a degree that on planet earth human beings are able to build roads build airplanes that fly in the sky build satellites that go out into space and with these abilities that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted the human being if a human being is not restricted by a law a divinely revealed law the human being will begin to think of himself as being divine as happened with the fara'ina the pharaohs of egypt that when they were able to build huge structures like the pyramids in the giza valley and the valley of the kings and other regions of egypt this ability enabled them to enslave thousands of people today if you go to the giza valley you will see that on the side of the pyramids they have the graves of the slaves who built the pyramids this is the effect of upon the human being if the human being does not follow the divinely revealed law that the human being with his ability enslaves people the human being with his ability begins to think of himself as god almighty on earth therefore allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed a law which is known as the sharia law the word sharia is from shara'a shara'a also means to start something but in arabic we know the word shari' means the road so sharia is the the road by which allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the human being parameters limits that this ability that you have is restricted to certain things otherwise the human being left to his own devices will make thousands of creatures extinct will kill other human beings 
will enslave other human beings, will commit atrocities. Look at what has happened in the modern age. We have a civilization today that claims to be civilized and democratic, yet we have nuclear weapons. We have weapons of mass destruction. More people have died in genocides in the past 50 years than that died in the First World War and the Second World War combined through weapons which kill and maim people. So human beings left without a law are such creatures that they destroy the planet, they destroy the environment, they kill animals, they enslave other human beings, as well as claiming to be God on earth, claiming divinity. And this is what happened with Nimrud, Nimrod. This is what happened with Fir'aun, that they claimed divinity because they were left without a Sharia. Now in this modern age, the questions regarding Sharia law are brought up due to the media attention given to Islam as well as the Sharia. So one objection which is mentioned is why is everyone not allowed to legislate for themselves? Why are the parameters not drawn by human beings themselves? Why are human beings not left to their own devices in order to make man-made laws to govern human beings? Why would human beings need to follow a divinely revealed law? This is a commonly asked question. How do we respond to this question? The response to this question is that the nature of every human being differs from human to human. The natures of each civilization vary from one civilization to the other. And every human being would have his own view on how the Sharia law must be, or how law must be drawn up. And therefore, this would lead to schism. This would lead to division. That one group of people would claim that the Sharia law must, or the law generally, must have a certain set of ordinances. Another group of people will say the law must be like the way they want the law to be. And another group of people would want the law to be how their nature dictates the law to be. This leads to division. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to us a sharia, a law, by which human beings are to govern themselves in accordance with those laws as revealed by the creator of humanity. So, this leads to a few other questions which people have. One of those questions is, is Sharia law open to change? Can Sharia law change? And a second question is 
regarding non-Muslims that if non-Muslims do not believe in Sharia law, why should Sharia law be applied upon non-Muslims? Now, referring back to the first question, which is, is Sharia law open to change? Today, we see extremes in how people may express themselves in regard to how they believe that Sharia law must be changed. But anyone who studies Sharia law would know within Ahl Sunnati wal Jama'ah, which is the majority of the Muslims, there are four schools of thought. Within these four schools of thought, there is enough leeway of legal rulings that if a country, a government rules a country, they are able to give judgments in accordance with four schools. Within those four schools, we have so much leeway that people are able to find lenient verdicts as well as verdicts which would make life easier for people. Al-Imam Jalaluddin al-Suyuti in his book Jazilul Mawahib Fikhtilaf al-Madhahib mentions that this is one of the mercies of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon this nation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given enough leeway in this sharia that there, there is open space for diversity. And this is based upon the very teachings of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We know the story narrated by Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam dispatched a group of companions to Bani Quraiza. Bani Quraiza was a Jewish tribe and they were fortified in a castle. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ordered the companions to perform the Asr prayer, the late noon prayer. Once they have reached the fortification or the castle of Bani Quraiza, the group of companions that left, one of them understood the command of the Messenger of Allah to mean that they must perform the late noon prayer, Asr prayer, once they have reached the fortification of Bani Quraiza. Another group of companions understood the command of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to mean that they must hasten or rush to reach the fortification, but if they get late for the prayer, then they must pray on the way. So both groups applied and exerted their ijtihad, ijtihad, their legal efforts in understanding the dictation or the stipulation of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. One group prayed once they had reached the castle, another group prayed on the way. When the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was informed of this divergent opinion amongst the companions, amongst the two groups, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not condemn any one of the two groups. 
these type of divergent opinions and variant opinions were preserved by the companions and then recorded within the principles of the four schools those four schools have enough leeway for people to govern with leniency a second aspect which relates to a Sharia al-Islamiyya, Islamic law today, is that in Islamic law we have something known as Qawaid Fiqhiyya. Qawaid Fiqhiyya is legal maxims. Legal maxims are those things by which people are able to determine with a universal law subsidiary judgments of the Sharia. You have a legal maxim like Al-Umuru Bi-Maqasidiha Matters are judged by their purpose or Al-A'malu Bin-Niyat that actions are by intention. Based upon this, the jurists are able to extract so many subsidiary laws, so many laws which can be applied in any time and place. Some non-Muslims seem to think that if they ask the question is it permissible for a person to pray on the moon or what is the legal status of the prayer on the moon they think that this prayer will conf- this question will confuse people but the reality is that sharia law is compatible in any time and place that the jurists are able to extract legal rulings from al-qawaid al-fiqhiyya which is legal maxims universal rules by which they can extract subsidiary rulings for any situation how do you think scholars are able to give verdicts today on organ transplants or even though they may have divergent views even on organ transplants or blood donation or prayer on a train or prayer on an airplane or so many different questions that people have how are they able to extract such rulings from this uh, body of law which uh, jurists are trained in which is known as al-qawaid al-fiqhiyya which is legal maxims so the sharia law does not need change in its principles as people claim because the Sharia law is easy in itself this is why the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi wa Wasallam said as narrated by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad which means I have been sent with the natural easy religion Al-Hanifiyya can be translated as the natural religion for human beings As-Samha meaning forgiving religion easy religion so if we say a law is necessary for human beings and we say that human beings if left to their own devices would not agree upon one set of laws for instance we have a clear difference between capitalism and communism a difference between communism and socialism and different sets of governance amongst human beings 
for those who believe in the divine in the divine creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed for them something known as Sharia the Islamic law based upon this someone may say who is to apply Sharia law Islamic law the response to this is that two-thirds of Sharia law is to be applied by governments two-thirds of Islamic law is to be applied by governments not by individuals so one-third of Sharia law is personal to the individual an individual can practice Sharia law himself like the prayer the charity zakat the Hajj the pilgrimage and other legal aspects of Sharia which are personal to himself and then you will have personal law like inheritance law mirath you have nikah you have uh, marriage you have talaq divorce you have a rida which is uh, suckling and the laws uh, pertaining to lineage these are personal law which a person can apply but the rest two-thirds of Sharia law is applied by government so governments are responsible for the application of the majority of Sharia law not individuals individuals are only tasked according to their ability meaning in acts of worship and in personal law but in such things like al-hudud corporal punishments or al-qisas retributional punishments these things are left to governments so people ask the question what is the legal status of applying sharia law upon non-muslims once you have a community of people who believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who believe in the revelation of the Quran who believe in the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam who believe in the prophetic way the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam these people then choose and select a leader who rules the region in which they live in the country that they live in that leader then is obliged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to apply Sharia law in daily life but does Sharia law apply to non-Muslims this is a question which is commonly asked and non-Muslims in Britain today become frightened when they hear that there are Muslims calling for Sharia law they are frightened by the media that the Sharia law has strict obligations upon non-Muslims so the question is what do the jurists state regarding the application upon uh, the application of Sharia law upon non-Muslims the response is that in the Hanafi and Shafi'i schools the jurists like in the Shafi'i school you can check the work Mughni al-Muhtaj in the Hanafi school if you check Ahkam al-Quran of al-Jassas you will find that the scholars mention that the non-Muslim minorities are judged in accordance with are left to their own 
religious rulings within their own communities. With the exception of those legal rulings which apply to universal laws. What do we mean by universal laws? Universal laws such as murder, universal laws such as theft, universal laws relating to other crimes. Those laws apply to all the inhabitants and citizens of that Muslim country. But there are other laws which are specific to non-Muslim minorities. They are left to their own law. And what they mention in the legal books also is that if non-Muslims approach a Muslim judge, a Qadi, to apply Sharia law upon them, or to give them the legal judgment from Sharia law, is it an obligation upon the Qadi, upon the judge, to apply Sharia law? They mention the Qadi has the right to decline. The Qadi has the right to decline and say, and leave them to their own community laws, to the laws of their own communities. This is some aspect of what is mentioned regarding the application of Sharia law amongst non-Muslims. One major aspect relating to Sharia law which I wanted to mention today is that regarding the principles of Sharia law, if a person has the wrong concept regarding the principles of Sharia law, they will make mistakes in the subsidiaries, in these branch issues. If they have the wrong concepts in the first place, they will misunderstand legal rulings of Sharia. For instance, non-Muslims will mention today that a jizya is placed upon non-Muslims, a jizya. And this jizya today is made to seem as being a tax upon non-Muslims. But what is rarely mentioned is the fact that the jizya for each non-Muslim who lives as a minority in a Muslim country is less than the zakat that is taken from Muslims. So if you have a, a government, a Muslim government, the Muslim government will have people employed to take to extract the zakat from the Muslims and different types of uh, the zakat being a religious obligation and different types of taxes also. The zakat is not a tax, it's a religious obligation. But they will take different types of taxes from the Muslim population. The amount taken from the Muslim population is more than the money taken from non-Muslims which is called jizya. This Understanding of the jizya is never mentioned in the media today. Why does the media not mention these points? Because if these facts are mentioned, then clarity is given regarding Sharia law. Or for instance, regard, with regard to the jizya, the term jizya is not necessary. In the time of Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu anhu, a group of non-Muslims wrote to him 
and said we will give the jizya but please do not call it jizya call it zakat so Sayyidina Umar an did not have a problem with changing the name because the reality was the same and what is jizya used for? jizya is used for protection of those non-muslim minorities the non-muslim minorities are protected what happened in the time of Sayyidina Umar an? What happened in the time of Sayyiduna Umar anhu was that Sayyiduna Umar an reached an area of Palestine and he saw a group of Christians who, had who, had, who were blind, old men, begging on the roads. And what did Sayyiduna Umar an say? Give them a portion, a pension from Baytul Mal, the Muslim treasury. Because we take jizya from them in their youth, we will not leave them to rot in their old age. These type of incidents are very rarely quoted in today's day and age by people who talk about the application of Sharia today. People who are calling for the application of Sharia, if they give the wrong concepts regarding what Sharia is, people will make major blunders as to the application of Sharia. For instance, on the media reports, they have shown in the past men carrying wires in Afghanistan beating women who would not veil themselves. Now, veiling is a divine command from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But where did those men get the command to beat people with wires? This is not found in the Sharia. Or for instance, prohibiting men from shaving their beards. The Messenger of Allah gave the command to Muslim men, grow your beards. But the prohibition that was carried out in Afghanistan was so strict that barbers were, barred, were banned from shaving the beard. And they were given corporal type punishments for shaving people's beards. There is nowhere in the Sharia where a prohibition like sh shaving the beard ha ha alongside has a punishment. A punishment is not mentioned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered Muslim women to cover. The government will command the Muslim women to cover. But the harshness that was portrayed by the media in order to portray Islam as being harsh towards women was in order to disfigure the very face of Sharia law. Why is, why is this attempt made today to disfigure the face of Sharia law so Muslims do not deem Sharia law fit for today's day and age? Like jihad is distorted today. Why is jihad distorted today so people may consider real jihad as being terrorism also. If people begin to think jihad is terrorism, jihad is violence, jihad is suicide bombing, jihad is maiming civilians and killing innocents. If people begin to think this, they will think that the very jihad mentioned in the Quran is also the same. Therefore, they will leave jihad in places like Palestine. So the same is done with the Sharia today. 
that wrong concepts regarding Sharia are implanted in people's minds and the media in order that Muslims and non-Muslims abandon Sharia thinking that Sharia is something harsh that they cannot apply in their lives before arriving I was having a conversation with someone regarding why Muslim women today do not cover up so many Muslim women not all of them so many non-Muslim women do not cover up and practice the veil what is the underlying reason the underlying reason is weakness of Iman weakness of faith so if people have weak Iman weak faith what will increase their weakness in faith what will increase their weakness in faith is, is if they are taught that Sharia law is something harsh and something that cannot be applied in daily life this will increase their weakness in faith so, 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 so what I was mentioning was with regard to distortion of universal principles of Sharia once you have a principle distorted and people taking the wrong concepts of Sharia the application of those universal principles would also become distorted so if people begin to think that there is an actual punishment for someone who shaves the beard in Sharia they would think that Sharia law is so strict that if someone was walking around with a shaved beard that the government would arrest them and apply certain strict punishments but these type of punishments in reality would have no foundation within the principal sources of Al-Islam Al-Quran Al-Kareem and the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam so the first major obstacle for Muslims to apply Sharia law in today's day and age is the wrong concepts that they have whether it is those who oppose Sharia amongst Muslims there are Muslims people who claim to be Muslim today who oppose Sharia law or whether those Muslims who are for the application of Sharia law in Muslim societies if they are for the application of Sharia law in Muslim societies they need to understand and study Sharia law in its correct form if they have any mistaken understanding of Sharia law they will fall into the major mistakes of those groups today who enforce a form of Sharia law in accordance with their own interpretations which have no basis from the Quran and from the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam but because at the, uh, at the onset of this lecture we answered the question why is Sharia necessary and then the question why is everyone not allowed to legislate for themselves the question that some people may have after this is what purpose does the Sharia have in our worldly lives you see today Islamic movements when they take over a country the very first thing that they do or tend to do is apply 
punishments for people. But we never hear regarding the economic system of Islam, how Islam can remove debt. No one, with the odd exception, attempts to remove the debt placed on countries by the IMF, International, International Monetary Fund. No one attempts to reinstate the correct currency within Muslim countries. Now, Sheikh Imran Hussein said that no one in the UK, according to his knowledge, will condemn the monetary system. We are in the UK, and I say today, and I have said in previous lectures, that the monetary system is fraudulent. What makes us realize that the monetary system is fraudulent? If today the British pound collapsed, if today the British pound collapsed, and you have 50,000 pounds saved in your safe at home, when the pound collapses, you open your safe, what will that paper be worth? The paper will be worth nothing. But with that £50,000, if you bought gold and silver, and the economy collapsed, and you opened your safe, will that gold and silver have value? The answer is yes. Now, despite my disagreements with Sheikh Imran Hussein and many things, I agree with him on this. So from the UK, I say that the monetary system is a fraudulent system that we have today. So one of the first things that a Sharia compliant government must do in the modern age is to sort out the weak economy of the Muslim world. What tends to happen in such cases is what happened in Indonesia in 1965. Revolutions, dictatorships and the killings of over a million people based upon economy. The sole reason for that is economy. So Sharia law, when any group attempts to apply Sharia law in the modern age, what do they do? The first thing they do and the first thing they display is hudud punishments, corporal punishments. Now, at this point, some people tend to think that corporal punishments are suspended Corporal punishments are never to be suspended. Corporal punishments are an obligation upon the rulers. But some people cite the incident of Sayyiduna Umar anhu that in his time there was a famine. And when there was a famine, Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu an would not have the hand of the thief amputated. So they say this is an example of Sharia law being suspended. But in reality, this is not an example of Sharia law being suspended. Some of them say this is maslaha. In reality, maslaha meaning something done for the greater benefit. In reality, this was not maslaha.
this was Sayyiduna Umar radiallahu an not applying the had punishment, the corporal punishment, because the conditions had not been met. The hudud punishments will remain from the time of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam until the end of the earth as long as there are Muslims on earth and as an obligation but with their conditions there are many conditions for instance the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam said la tuqta'u al-aydi fil ghazwi hands are not amputated in battle meaning you do not apply hudud punishments of hand amputation for theft during warfare so there is a condition that there, it is a time of peace. You need to establish peace before you establish the had. But it does not mean the had punishment is done away with because only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has the authority to do away with punishments. But what is done is that the punishment, the conditions of the punishment are not met. We do not say the punishments are suspended because when something is suspended, it is done away with for a while. We say the conditions are not met. Maghrib time for the prayer, the, the dusk prayer, the sunset uh, prayer has not entered. Is Maghrib time, is Maghrib Salah an obligation upon us? Now we will say no. When the prayer time will come in, the obligation will come in with the time. And the conditions would have to be met that we perform ablution. We face Makkah al-Mukarramah to pray. We have intention. The area must be clean where we pray. So in the same way, when corporal punishments are to be implemented in a Muslim society, the conditions must be met also. So if people are in a time of civil war, if people are killing one another, the conditions are not met. But the hudud punishments, the corporal punishments are still valid when the conditions are met. So this is a common misnomer amongst people where they say the hudud punishments need reform. Or they say the hudud punishments, the corporal punishments need to be done away with. These are major mistakes of people who state such things. The hudud punishments are not to be reformed. Rather, Muslims need to be reformed who have misunderstood the Sharia law. It is Muslims who need reform. It is not the Sharia that needs reform. So, people at this point ask, what are the purpose? What are the purposes of Sharia law? Maqasidu Sharia. The jurists call this. Maqasidu Sharia, that behind every legal ruling that we have in Sharia, there is a purpose in order to preserve an aspect of something to do with humans, to do with human civilization. If you observe any legal Judgment in the Quran or the Hadith of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And remember one thing. 
So many people read one verse of the Quran or one hadith and they will fall into an error in understanding that verse or that hadith due to two reasons. One of two. One is that they may misunderstand the hadith due to their erroneous understanding. Like, أُمِرْتُ أَنْ أُقَاتِلَ النَّاسَ حَتَّى يَقُولُ لَا إِلَهِ The hadith states, I have been ordered now, how people are translate this, they say, the hadith means, I have been ordered to kill people until they say, La ilaha illallah. So many people today are unable to explain this hadith. And they misunderstand the hadith. But the very understanding of the hadith is in the wording itself. The word is, Umirtu an uqatil an-nas. Uqatil is from Bab Mufa'ala, which is, an action which is reciprocated. So the meaning would be, I have been ordered to fight those who fight me, meaning the Muslim state, until they bear witness, until they say, La ilaha illallah. If they say, La ilaha illallah, then, then there is no adversary, there is no enemy. But if someone does not know how to read proof texts of Islam, they will misunderstand verses as well as a hadith. This is one of the first reasons why people make this major blunder. A second reason why people will make the blunder is because they will not read all the verses relating to that one subject. So they will read a verse of the Quran. They will not place that verse in the context of all the verses relating to that one subject. Or they will read a hadith and they will not read all the hadith relating to that one subject. And scholars have compiled books where people can refer back to those books. If someone says, it is difficult for me to refer to all the hadith in so many collections, the scholars have collected the hadith relating to particular subjects. So you can refer back to those books and all the hadith relating to that subject are compiled. So these are mistakes which people must avoid. But what are the maqasid sharia What does the sharia preserve? The first thing that the sharia preserves is religion. And also the right of human beings to believe with their own freedom of choice. The Quran states, لا إكراها في الدين There is no compulsion in religion. Now, this is the universal principle, but what do people quote? They quote the punishment of the apostate. The punishment of the apostate. In order to contradict this principle, they say, if Sharia law had freedom of religion, why is there a punishment for the apostate? Remember when we discussed jihad, which is fighting in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is the underlying purpose of legislation of jihad? And what is the underlying purpose of the legislation of the killing of the apostate? In the Hanafi, Maliki and Hanbali schools, the fatwa in those schools or the 
reason given for the legislation of jihad is hiraba, is warfare. That someone perpetuates war against Muslims and therefore jihad has been legislated in order to protect Muslim society. This is the underlying reason why jihad has been legislated. In the same way, when the hadith orders the ruler to kill the apostate, the underlying ruling or the underlying reason behind that judgment is warfare, is treason. That when such a person leaves the fold of Islam within a Muslim country, within a Muslim society, and decides to have the intention of warfare against the society, the, the ruler is given the dispensation to kill him. The meaning is not what people understand today that if a person leaves Islam in a non-Muslim country or even within a Muslim country that every individual has the right to go and kill him. This is not the meaning. And this is what I mentioned at the onset that when people have the wrong concept they make erroneous judgments. If you have the wrong concept from the onset you will make many erroneous judgments and this is what groups today, Islamic movements, people who attempt to enforce Islam today are doing. That they have made erroneous judgments and also so-called reformist movements. Movements that want to reform Islam and change Islam, they also make errors in how they understand legal rulings within Islam. These are the two diametrically opposed extremes that we have today. A group of people who have extremist, or people label it as extremist, I would say erroneous understanding of Islam. And the other group that are known as reformists, who would want to change Sharia from within. So. The first thing that Sharia law would protect is religion. Now freedom of religion is within this. And the apostate punishment is not included, uh, or we would say does not contradict la ikraha fi din. Why? Because the underlying reason for the apostate punishment is what we said was hiraba. What is hiraba? Warfare. That the purpose of the apostate is that he intends to to do treason against Muslim societies and therefore the ruler has the dispensation to kill him. Of course, remember uh, the woman is, is not killed for apostating. The child is not killed for apostating in an Islamic state. Why is a woman exempt from that law? Why is a child exempt from that law? Because they do, do not have the ability to cause warfare against society. This is the underlying reason for the ruling. What other purposes are there behind the Sharia law? The second great purpose of Sharia law is life, al-hayatu. Sharia law 
has been legislated for Muslims to govern Muslims and aspects of the non-Muslims within the non-Muslim minorities within a Muslim community in order to protect life in order to protect life therefore you have qisas retributional punishments and these are the things that are distorted today to remove the love of Sharia law from the hearts of people today. The third thing that Sharia law preserves is Al-Aqlu, the intellect. The fourth is lineage and honor, and nasab lineage and honor. And the fifth is wealth. These are maqasidu sharia and what each law, if any, whenever you observe any law within sharia, that law will preserve any one of these five things. The legislation of prayer, the obligation of prayer is to preserve which one? Religion. And we would say also intellect. The legislation of zakat would include religion, would include life, would include wealth. The legislation of hajj would be the preservation of religion. And then each law, whenever you observe any law within sharia, that law will preserve one of these five maqasid. This is why in the Quran, what does Al-Quran Al-Kareem tell us that if someone is dying of hunger, it is permitted for him to consume some swine in order to live. Why is this legislation given? In order to preserve life. If someone is eating food and a morsel of food gets stuck in the throat and the person takes a swig or a sip of alcohol in order to make the morsel of food go down otherwise he would choke and die this would be permitted of course uh, it is only permitted according to the parameters of which it would save someone's life he wouldn't eat the entire swine or drink the entire wine bottle, nor only the amount which would save him. Why is this legislated to preserve life? So when people ask regarding hudud punishments, they ask, why are the hudud punishments, corporal punishments not changed with the times? The response is that these five things are to be preserved as long as the world exists and as long as Muslims are on the face of the earth. Therefore, the laws that preserve these five things are also preserved. They are unchangeable. Those laws are unchangeable. But the conditions of those laws must be met. Secondly, before we finish, I would want to mention, and of course this opens up discussion for further debate, 
which Muslims must be open about today in discussing these things is when we apply these laws in practical terms how common would it become to find someone doing an act which is illegal and therefore being punished for instance adultery and fornication what is the sharia law that if four males see the act of adultery being performed or fornication being performed they must see the private organs of both people who are committing that act entering meaning explicitly and if they do not see that then the punishment is not applicable so if they find someone lying with a woman a man and a woman lying naked and they report this to the judge and the judge asks them did you see the act taking place explicitly and they reply no then all four of those witnesses will be punished by the government so how is the applicability of this act even in the lifetime of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam when the people were punished for adultery in the few hadith that we have when people were punished they admitted to doing the act very as far as i am aware there was not anyone caught doing the act of adultery in the open where people could see the act explicitly so therefore we would say these hudud punishments are preventives also it is not necessary that they are always applied because the conditions are very stringent but this does not mean that the laws are not to be applied you see there's a fine line we are saying the laws are so stringent that very rarely they would be applied as a preventive but there are some people who are saying we must get rid of these laws entirely or we must reform these laws but i would say these laws do not need any reform because they are fine and perfect because they were revealed by allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what needs reform are muslims muslims today have gone to extremes in understanding sharia law some have some of them who are for sharia law have concepts which have no basis in islam and others have gone to the other extreme that they feel insecure a sense of insecurity with the modern age and the western world that they feel that sharia law must be done away with or reformed or they refer to these things as needing ijtihad but in reality they do not need ijtihad such people must be must read the ijtihad the former scholars and they will find this understanding that sharia law is applicable today as it was in the past but what needs reform is the minds of muslims and muslim societies and muslim rulers in order that they place sharia law in its correct form in the muslim world of course there are other subjects relating to this which are subjects such as jihad 
fighting in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the applicability of jihad, the parameters of jihad. Inshallah, in the near future, we shall hold such a seminar in London. We are planning to hold such a seminar in London on a greater scale, which such things could be discussed and debated. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to uh, understand the Sharia in its correct form. Inshallah, uh, we will open up for questions and answers. Before we open up for questions and answers, I would want to mention one thing with regard to former Muslims, people who leave Islam. Someone asked me, what is the underlying reason as to why so many people leave Islam? And I responded to them by saying that the main reason is not intellectual reasons as they may pretend. The main reason is that they have not been nurtured upon the love of Allah and the love of the Messenger of Allah When a heart loses love for Allah and love for the Messenger of Allah such people can leave the fold of Islam and begin to hate Sharia law and find it difficult to practice Sharia law. So the applicability of Sharia law cannot ever be done. Sharia can never be applied except with a community of believers, mu'minun, a community of believers who have love for Allah and His Messenger This is what Islamic movements are forgetting today, that if their movement is not built upon love for Allah and His Messenger then you can enforce Sharia on people, but once your government is finished, their state will be like those people in the Middle East and other regions today, that when such governments leave, the women take off their scarves because they were enforced to wear their scarves. The men abandon prayer because they were forced to pray. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala return us back to that origin of love of Allah and love of His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We'll open up for questions and answers. So if there are any questions, you can write your questions or ask them from the audience. <coughs> question is <clears throat> that some people state that if the purpose of the Sharia is fulfilled by not following the commands of the Sharia then we do not need to follow those commands example given is alcohol that if they have different types of alcohol or certain amounts of alcohol the 
the purpose of the prohibition of alcohol is to preserve the intellect. But some people can drink certain amounts of alcohol and not become drunk. So they say the purpose is fulfilled, therefore the legal ruling does not apply. How do we respond to this? How we respond is by saying that a small amount of alcohol may not affect a certain person but will affect other people. And then everyone will start differing in how, many, how much alcohol would be permitted for them. Every individual will start saying, one would say a cup is permissible for me, another would say a pint is permissible for me. So therefore this objection does not carry any weight. Another example they give, some people ask the question, they say the purpose of hijab of a woman is in order to preserve modesty. But if a woman is modest and a man can control himself and not have sexual desire for that woman, then she can uncover certain parts. So a man who sees women dressed without hijab in tight clothing, he may become habitual in this and such women do not entice him. But this will differ from person to person. If a person grew up on, in California, on the beaches where women work, walk in some places topless, and he becomes habitual in seeing this, and is not excited by seeing this, then for him it would be permitted to see women, women's chests. And for another person it would be pro prohibited. So like this, such an objection does not carry any weight. If there are any other questions, otherwise we will close for the prayer, Maghrib prayer also. You see, the question is regarding a, a case that took place in Pakistan. And the second case took place in Scotland. So the question is, those people who were supporting Mumtaz Qadri in Pakistan do not seem to support the individual who carried out the attack in Scotland. How do we respond to this? Firstly, I would say, you need to ask those scholars. But secondly, such scholarship today is so contradictory in its nature that we have people quoting passages of books of jurisprudence like La riba bain al-harbi wa muslimin fi dar al-harb there is no usury or interest between a warmongering non-Muslim and a Muslim in the Darul Harb, which is an abode of war, or the non-Muslim residents, the non-Muslim countries. 
And based on this, they would justify taking out interest-based mortgages. But others, instead of quoting this passage, they quote the Qaida Fiqhiyah, the legal maxim, الضروراتو تبيحو المحظورات which means necessities validate prohibited things like we mentioned the example of alcohol and swine so they say therefore it's permitted for someone to buy a property on interest but then some of them will contradict themselves by saying the number of properties is only one out of necessity others will say you can buy as many properties as you want because this is Darul Harb. But when they call this place Darul Harb, then the ahkam, the legal rulings of the non-Muslim, are also the ahkam of a harbi. When they give statements to the media, they will say that we do not consider the non-Muslims as harbi. So they will contradict themselves. Why do they make these contradictions? I would say because, again, going back to the initial point that I made, that the principles, the universal principles are misunderstood. And therefore, the application of those universal principles is misapplication. And they make erroneous statements, contradictory statements with regard to Sharia law. What I stated regarding the case of Mumtaz Qadri, cannot be contradicted in any way. What I said was, he did not have the right to reappeal the judgment of the court. Because the, the court that passed the death sentence on him did not give him the right to reappeal. This is a miscarriage of justice. He must be given the right to reappeal. Secondly, in Sharia law, the death penalty cannot apply to him. But the government can give him discretional punishment. This is what I stated. The government can punish Mumtaz Qadri with discretional punishment. And discretional punishment is not death penalty. And the same would apply to Tanweer. He carried out the killing within Britain, the British law would apply to him. Is there a contradiction in my statement? The answer is no. The same way that death penalty does not apply on Tanweer according to British law, death penalty cannot apply on Mumtaz Qadri according to Islamic law. Why am I not making a contradiction? Because I have applied the correct principle upon the subsidiary issues. Is that clear? Does that clarify? The issue. I gave a whole lecture on this issue, uh, which people have not responded to. They were not able to respond to this. There is no way the government of Nawaz Sharif was able, according to Islamic law, apply death penalty upon him because of the numerous factors involved within the case of Mumtaz Qadri. So many extraneous factors, like the statements of Salman Ta'seer. Uh, whether he had committed blasphemy or not, these issues were to be debated in a court of law, which they were not. Is that clear? Does that answer your question? Uh, we had a question which was regarding blasphemy law in the Hanafi school. 
the short answer is blasphemy is considered a part of the murtad law, the apostate. So anyone who commits blasphemy is an apostate. And what type of apostate would they fall under? They would fall under a specific category of apostate. Every person who commits explicit intentional blasphemy would fall under the category of someone who commits treason against a Muslim state. So therefore the punishment of treason would apply to them with its conditions. Another question here is can a Muslim government carry out jihad warfare against a non-Muslim region nation when the non-Muslim nation is not threatening it i.e. self-defense is not a factor. Remember when we said the legislation of jihad is hiraba, the meaning of this is all jihad is legislated in order to repel an invading force or to attack a country or a region which is preparing itself to wage war against a Muslim nation. So if this factor is not found in a non-Muslim country then they are not considered as enemies. An alliance can be made with such non-Muslims. As we know, Sayyiduna Imam al-Mahdi will make alliances. Why would he make alliances with non-Muslims? Because those non-Muslims will not have the underlying factor of Hiraba, which is warmongering against Muslims. So the very underlying factor which makes jihad obligatory is warmongering. If the enemy has the underlying factor of Hiraba, then the, the Imam, the Khalifa, and if there is no Khalifa, then the, the government, the modern terms would be prime minister or the president of a country would only commit acts of war against another nation based upon the underlying fact of Hiraba, which is uh, warfare or intention of warfare. Uh, there is a question here. Assalamu alaikum. I am from Kashmir seeking present situation in Kashmir. Is it permissible to do jihad there and make dua for people of Kashmir? I would say if you are doing jihad in the name of Pakistan, then there is no jihad. Because modern day Pakistan is a secular country that uses Kashmir, and I am from Kashmir also, that use, uh, origins are from Kashmir, that uses Kashmir as a political football. If Pakistan today was based upon the principles of Islam, then the corruption of that country would have ended many years ago. But today is Pakistan is a secular country and is exploiting the situation in Kashmir. Does this mean 
we are for any type of oppression? The answer is no. We are not for Indian oppression of Muslims. So what is permissible? What is permissible is that if a Muslim is living in his home and a soldier enters his home in order to dishonor him or to kill him, in that process, if a Muslim fights that soldier, he's performing jihad to preserve his life and his family and his wealth and honor. Man mata duna ardihi wa malihi mata shahidan. Whoever dies in order to protect his honor and his wealth dies as a martyr. But what I would not advise people to do is to do acts of aggression placing themselves in danger because aggressive jihad is the task of the governments. Muslim rulers are tasked to attack armies and army bases, not Muslim individuals. So the situation in Kashmir is such, do not place yourself in danger. Do not place your families in danger. But if any oppressive soldier enters your house, then you have every right to defend yourself. There is a fine line between the two. Otherwise, there is an exploitation of the Kashmiri people like there is an exploitation of the Palestinian people. Unfortunately, because of the rulers of those regions, that the rulers do not rule in accordance with Islam and only remember jihad when it suits their agenda. Otherwise, what country allows itself to be split into two to lose the population of 200 million people? There is only one country. Its name is Pakistan. Pakistan lost East Pakistan and allowed it to go. Did not sit down with the people of East Pakistan to dialogue. Did not sit down to make some form of peace. They allowed an entire nation to go even though both nations, East and West Pakistan, were formed in the name of Islam. Yet over a smaller region known as Kashmir, they have spilt the blood of millions of people. Is this any logical sense? That you allowed a Muslim nation of over 200 million to separate from you when that nation was formed in the name of Islam and yet a smaller region, you allow the politics of that smaller region to continue. So until Pakistan does not have a real Muslim leader, and how will they attain a real Muslim leader, meaning a Muslim who applies Sharia law in its correct way? How will they have that by reforming our population? Now, in a hadith, the hadith states, "Kama kuntum alikum." Weak hadith, but it means the way you are, the rulers are placed over you. So our situation is such that our population needs reform from the very foundation. What foundation needs reform? Iman. 
belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then avoiding batinul ithmi the inward sins when we form a society walladhina jahadu fina lanahdiyannahum those look at the word walladhina jahadu those who struggle fina in our ways lanahdiyannahum we shall surely guide them when we have a society of people who have strong iman and avoid inward sins as well as outward sins the effect of that would be that we would have righteous rulers and when we have righteous rulers they will perform jihad correctly until that time do not fall victims to political agendas of people who abuse the name of islam Uh, this question relates to black magic and taweez i think that's irrelevant to the subject today there is a brother there with the question the question here is the preserva- preservation of life if it contradicts the preservation of deen what does al quran al karim tell us that if someone is in such a situation that they are being tortured and they are made to say words of kufr disbelief they are permitted to say the words of disbelief in order to save their life why is this what's the rationality behind this each one of these maqasid has necessities essential aspects and additional aspects necessity of iman is believing with the heart essential aspect of iman is to pronounce your faith when asked if someone asks you are you a muslim it is essential to say i am muslim with life the essential aspect of life is life itself not the essential the necessary aspect the first category so when the first category of religion the second category of religion which is the essential category clashes with the first category of life which one is given preference the first category of life so pronouncing your faith is essential but life is necessary so the sharia gives preference to the necessary and this is a rule that's applied to each one of those maqasidu sharia i think uh, we will conclude there inshallah there will be many questions especially after the lecture is available for other people to see and it will instigate a debate amongst those who call for reformation of sharia which i say sharia does not need reformation muslims need reformation muslims need reformation from the foundation in faith iman and secondly in avoiding spiritual elements outward and inward sins outward and inward sins when muslims begin to have strong iman strong faith 
as a majority community, meaning if you have a hundred Muslims, 60 or 70 of them avoid inward sins and outward sins and have strong faith, in a Muslim country you will have a ruler who will apply correct Sharia. This would be the effect. And then they will not exploit people like they are exploiting people today. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rectify us as individuals and rectify our communities and rectify the ummah. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم وأتوب إليه جزا الله عنا سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم ما هو أهله جزا الله عنا سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم ما هو أهله جزا الله عنا سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم ما هو أهله سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين